Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wool on us. Facing and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinizing through their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If you're listening to this podcast, uh, you probably already know who Cory Doctorow is. Uh, if somehow uh, you've made it this far in life knowing about Tech Dirt without somehow also knowing about Cory Doctorow, um, well, that's going to change today. Uh, Cory is famous for a variety of different things. Um, he works for EFF, doing important work, saving the world from DRM. Uh, he writes for the Uber blog uh, Boing Boing, among other places. And on the side, he writes incredible science fiction books for children and adults. Um, his last few books have been more focused on, in, in the science fiction realm, have been more focused on being for young adults, uh, though they're excellent reads for full adults as well. <laughs> um, but just a few weeks ago, he came out with uh, Walk Away, his first science fiction book for uh, targeted at adults in a bunch of years. Now, Corey was kind enough to hand me a draft copy of the book, uh, I think over a year ago, and that was without the title Walk Away on it. Instead, uh, the secret code name, I think, for the, the draft was called Utopia, and the uh, cover looked like it was a version of Thomas More's famous 16th century satire. Um, and I assume that was somewhat on purpose. <laughs> uh, Walk Away is, was to me an astounding and, and challenging book. Um, it's, and I said this on Twitter as well, it's one of the most thought provoking fiction books that I've read in many years. Um, and I don't necessarily want to give away key plot points here. Um, but I will say that for the first few chapters, I kept changing my mind about the book. And that's not about whether or not it was good or bad, because it's excellent throughout the book. But I kept changing my mind on what kind of book it was. And this might be because of a problem with the way my own brain <laughs> works, in that when I'm reading something, my, my brain reflexively tries to categorize it. And even if I consciously know better than to try and do that, my mind at least can't help but try. And so after the first chapter, I was pretty sure what kind of book Walk Away was. But then by the first page of the second chapter, a bunch of the assumptions I had made about the first chapter were kind of blown to pieces. By the end of the second chapter, I was quite sure what the book was about, except that that was blown to pieces by the beginning of the third chapter and so on. Um, to me, the book kind of defied classification. And I'll admit that at first this bothered me a little bit. <laughs> and I even complained to a friend about it while also saying, but I can't put the damn thing down because it's so captivating. And to some extent, this inability to classify the book, uh, to me, made it much, much better. Um, there's a bit in, I think it's an appendix to the, to the famed science fiction book, The Illuminatus Trilogy by Robert Anton Wilson and Robert Shea, in which they explain how to force someone to really think for themselves. And it's been years since I read the book, so this might not even be <laughs> even remotely accurate, but at least the way I remember it was that they talk about having a private in the army with two generals next to 
to the private, one on either side. And one demands that the private sit down while the other demands that he stand up. And, and the question is, what is the private supposed to do? And the answer is that in this situation alone, that the person actually has to make up their own mind. That is when they're receiving contradictory but equally compelling arguments, then you find out what you really think and what you really believe and how you really act. And to me, that was part of what made walk away so interesting. It both confirmed and challenged uh, some of my beliefs, often at the same time. And thus, it kind of forced me to think about a bunch of ideas in ways that I had not really considered before. And so with that, I'm thrilled that Corey's able to join us on the podcast today. Uh, as you probably know, again, on the assumption that you know who he is, he and I have a ton of overlapping interests, and I'm sure we can and we can and possibly will touch on a variety of topics uh, beyond the book from things like copyright to surveillance and more. But officially, he's here to talk about the book Walk Away, uh, which I basically order everyone listening to go out and read somehow. So, Corey, welcome. Well, thank you. What a wonderful introduction. Um, my cup genuinely runneth over here. That was fantastic, Mike. Thank you. Well, it's again, it is, it is a, a really... Um, it's a, it's a stunning work of art. The, the book is, uh, you know, I, I end up reading a lot of books and, and have all, you know, different opinions of it, but it, it, it really sort of got into my brain <laughs> right. in, in all sorts of interesting ways. And, and it was, well, that's, it was, a, that's fantastic. Yeah. So I'll start with sort of the, the easy question and I apologize because I'm sure you're answering this a million okay. times, but, <laughs> but, but I mean, why this story? What made you write this particular book? Well, so on the one hand, you know, there's rarely just a neat origin story, you know, for, for books. It's not like I was bitten by a radioactive spider that turned <laughs> me into the author of this book. And, and, you know, as, as I'm sure you've experienced consuming and um, synthesizing the news for Tech Dirt, there's the, and I think this actually explains some of your categorize, categorization frustrations. <laughs> uh, you know, at, like you, everything that crosses my transom in the world, I immediately assess for whether or not I'm going to talk to other people about it, and if so, how <laughs> I'm going to talk to them about it, right? Yeah. This is like a, a reflexive pre-processing step that happens without a lot of uh, conscious intervention. It's just yeah. always going on in the background. And uh, I... Um, and so, uh, you know, I have all of these different influences. I write about them on Boing Boing, everything that, that seems interesting. And I like to say that it, it creates a kind of super saturated solution of fragmentary ideas that seem like they, they might be part of something bigger. And then every now and again, a couple of them will glom together and nucleate and crystallize something out of that solution. But there were some proximate causes for this. One was a, a book called A Paradise Built in Hell by the excellent writer Rebecca Solnit, who's probably best known for having coined the term mansplaining, mm -hmm. but uh, who had occasion to do that because she's a historian and she had written a well-regarded history book or book about history uh, that had been written up in a highbrow magazine like The New Yorker. And she was at a party where a blowhard, rich, old dude had read the review in the New Yorker and was explaining to her in excruciating detail and incorrectly what the book was about. Oh, God. And she kept saying, no, I wrote that book. I, <laughs> I, I wrote that book. <laughs> That's, that essay is a wonderful essay. But, you know, she wow. continues to write spectacular history. And one of the books that she wrote, this Paradise Built in Hell book, is uh, does what, what good history books do. She goes to primary sources, uh, first-person contemporaneous accounts of life in disaster, 
um, mm. what people do during you know, earthquakes and floods and civic unrest. And what she finds is that although we tend to remember those times as times of, uh, of great depravity, where neighbors turn on neighbors, that the people who live through them experience them as moments of, uh, uh, of great uh, humanity, that people rise to the occasion. And there's this weird disconnection there. And a lot of it is, um, uh, or seems to be an epiphenomenon of anxiety about class and race, that, that rich people are really convinced that the poors are going to come and eat them when the lights go out. <laughs> and, uh, and this, it actually has a name, elite panic, and it, it manifests wow. really toxically as a um, uh, preemptive strike against, the, against poor people in times of crisis to prevent them from from rising up and you know tearing down the, the grand houses and that acts against their ability to uh, help themselves and to help their neighbors and you know the canonical example of this is in san francisco um, after the 1906 earthquake general funston had two really incorrect beliefs one was that he knew how to use controlled demolitions to create fire breaks and the other <laughs> one is that poor people couldn't be trusted to put out fires and uh, he, um, it, as a consequence, burned down a quarter of San Francisco. And the reason it burned is he wouldn't let the poor people who lived in the Mission District go back and fight the fires because he thought that they would loot. And that's that's a, a, as neat a parable as you could ask for, <laughs> for how the this irrational belief in the uh, the the wickedness of people um, can actually become uh, a self fulfilling prophecy that that it can turn disaster into catastrophe. And I was also inspired by other books, particularly Piketty's Capital in the 21st Century, which I'm sure you're familiar with. It's yep. this magnificent data-driven look at how um, even in, in very fair markets, you have this uh, gradual accumulation of capital into fewer and fewer hands, which makes markets less and less fair, and that um, markets themselves don't self-regulate, and, uh, and that furthermore, um, there is a kind of toxic self-serving bullshit that accompanies the um, accumulated accumulation of wealth into fewer and fewer hands that um, is best described as the delusion of meritocracy. And meritocracy itself was coined as a satirical phrase, it's just like the, uh, the fact that utopia was a satire is often lost on people. Meritocracy is also a satirical term from a, from a novel. Uh, hmm. And um, it describes the uh, self-serving belief that the reason you have more than everyone else is that you're better than everyone else and not that you're luckier or more of a bastard. And, <laughs> uh, and so those two thoughts, you know, they came together. And with Little Brother, I had done something that I think is relatively innovative in that uh, while pulp stories, which science fiction is, I'm very proud to be a pulp writer, plot, plots are good. Uh, and pulp stories had historically treated computers as plot conveniences, as things that um, that if they had a capability that would make the plot work worse, you could just pretend they didn't have that capability. <laughs> and if they were right. incapable of doing something that the plot needed them to do, you could just have them do it, and no one would no one would care. The difference wouldn't wouldn't matter. And um, I told a story in which that was a pulp story but where all of the drama arose from the actual constraints and capabilities of computers. They were non-metaphorical. They were rigorously used. Right. And in the same way, pulp plotters, when they write um, uh, stories, they have these two great plotting devices. One, against, one is man against man, and the mm -hmm. other is man against nature. 
And they often try to have a two-for-one in the form of man against man against nature. You know, the tsunami right. knocks down your building and then your neighbors come over to eat you. <laughs> and and those stories, in the same way that stories about computers that don't act like computers, those stories can be cracking reads. Some of my favorite stories yeah. work on that premise. But um, they are not rigorous uh, descriptions of how people behave in, 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 in times of disaster. And I thought, what if instead of having a story in which the um, drama springs from fighting with your enemies. What mm -hmm. if the drama springs from fighting with your friends? Fighting with people mm -hmm. who actually agree with you about yeah. what is to be done, but disagree with you about how to do it. I mean, as uh, you and I have, have both spent the last two or three years in a, an awkward situation like this with some of the web's greatest open institutions, yeah. institutions that I think we both really respect and admire, but with whom we have a seemingly irreconcilable difference. Yeah. Um, I'm debating, is it worth going down that tangent? <laughs> yeah, we, it's, we, I, we I, I sort of got into that with Snowden the other <laughs> night when we were on stage at, at NYPL. And it's so esoteric that it's, you know, that's one of the reasons the fight has been so uh, difficult, is that it's so esoteric that yeah. just digging I, but, into it will take a long time. Yeah, I mean, your we, show. We could, yeah, we could do a quick one. I mean, I think people would be interested uh, yeah. if you want to give the quick summary of kind of what's sure. going on. Well, so the World Wide Web Consortium is this amazing historic organization that makes open standards for the web. Uh, it has become less and less central to the um, uh, direction of technology for a number of reasons, one of which is that apps have uh, made the web a little less relevant, and they've also yeah. given organizations that would have plumped for an open web solution, a closed solution that they can use to play off against uh, the open web. So browser right. vendors and so on, they can say, you have to make things more like the closed web or our offerings will only be available in the closed web. And Netflix is an example of this where they've allegedly secretly told all of the browser vendors that if they don't get DRM for the web, um, there just won't be Netflix on the web anymore. It'll all be in apps and that right. browsers will become less and less relevant. And so the W3C said that the right compromise to make was to make DRM for the web, to keep the web viable in their view. Um, right. And so to make the web more open, we have to make it closed, which, you know, is a little like uh, destroying the village to save it. <laughs> and um, it's a place where we have been unable to find a lot of common ground, even even something that I thought of as, as a, a, an easy win there, which is that W3C members could maybe just make an agreement like the existing agreements they have on patents, not right. to use the rights they get from DRM to attack core open web activities like adapting technology for people with disabilities or reporting security vulnerabilities. And even that hasn't flown at the W3C. And yeah. this is this is you know this is this is where it gets really sort of um, inside baseballish. But the the long and the short of it is it's come to a vote that was totally indeterminate and unprecedented in the history of the web, and now. Tim Berners-Lee, who um, I think unfortunately did not take decisive action earlier, is going to have to actually pick a winner and a loser, and either one is going to box in the W3C in ways that I think they would prefer not happen, and I think that are, are going to be very compromising to the organization, and I really wish that we'd come to a better um, crux yeah. than this. Yeah, no, it's it's an unfortunate situation, and You've written a ton about it. We've written a ton about it. Um, and the way that it relates to the book is that it yeah. has been at times, unfortunately and very regrettably, acrimonious because these yeah. are people and organizations I respect very deeply. 
Uh, and Mozilla has been a part of this story as well, because Mozilla is this nonprofit open web organization, but they too have plumped for DRM for much the same reasons. And there are Mozillans who are furious with me about yeah. the fact that I've, I've said that this was the wrong call to make and that it was a call that uh, compromises what Mozilla stands for and compromises the open web. Um, you know, anyone who's gone to Christmas dinner and had a bad time knows that arguing <laughs> with people you love is much harder than arguing with people you hate. And not just if you lose. I mean, even if you win and maybe especially if you win the argument. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it, it's it's tough. And I, I think um, that is part of the... the the very interesting nature of the book and, and, and the fact that like the other thing that, that is interesting is like, you know, so many books, I think, you know, especially in the fiction realm sort of set up, you know, sort of good and bad very clearly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whereas in this book, it's, it's, it's a lot more fluid, right? Because you have challenging situations and, and people who make different decisions and have different approaches to it. Um, and, and even, you know, people who sort of, you sort of change your views on over time, um because of you know sort of choices that are made throughout which which again was, was part of to me what sort of made it so so captivating and, and interesting and and i guess you know it even though it was in sort of this you know future realm though i don't even know how far far in the future did you ever do you ever indicate I'm, I'm i rarely do in my stories you know yeah i i, I and in fact i usually throw in some contrafactual elements that make it hard <laughs> to pin down the time. And I, I, I like it because it seems to give it some longevity. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it, it's, um, it's, it's good. It's, it's, I'm, yeah, <laughs> sorry. It's, I, I, I like the way that, 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 that plays out and, and that it, it makes it, um, just sort of a, a, a different way to, to think about it. And, you know, w- one of the other things too, is that I think, um, I mean, a lot of science fiction, I think, sort of falls into, you know, what would be called dystopian. Um, and, and again, again, this was, and I apologize for sort of continually going back to this, but like, I, I sort of kept trying to classify this book as like, is it dystopian? Mm-hmm. But like, you have like these elements where like, well, that's dystopian, but that's not at all. <laughs> and so it sort of flows together with, with like, you know, there, there's there's strong optimism and and you know the power of of both technology and innovation to do amazing things, but also like the horrors that that technology can can bring about. Um, and it, it you know it it feels weird in that the book does feel like it's taking a stand, but at the same time not taking a stand that you expect it to take. Um, and and I don't even quite know where I'm going with that, but like sure. was that was that in, intentional or how did how did you get there? I mean, I, I so part of the thing was like to me, like as I kept reading and again, like this just goes back to the way my brain deals with these things. But like, like I kept saying, like I don't think I would have written the book this way. And and obviously, I'm I'm a different person than you, and I look at the world in different ways. But we do have similar viewpoints on lots of things. But there are lots of things where I was like, this is not the way I would have written it. But I I really liked the way that you wrote it because it because it was so challenging. Well, you know, I I um. I think that the confusion about dystopianism, it's like a little, a little bit like the confusion about, um, about young adult. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, I'm working on a third little brother right novel, a novel right now called uh, Crypto Wars, and it's a young adult novel, or it's a little brother novel for adults. And every time <laughs> I say that, someone says, "But wasn't Little Brother for adults too?" 
And Little Brother was for adults, but it and and young adults, but it was a young adult novel. And young adult means a couple of different things, and this is where the confusion springs from. Because on the one hand, it was a novel that was targeted at young adults, uh-huh. and the and on the other hand, it was a novel that followed the genre conventions of young adult fiction, which has okay. a genre, which has you know developed into a genre with certain conventions. Um, you know, Neil Stevenson wrote a bunch of science fiction novels that weren't science fiction. He wrote these these novels about the discovery of calculus, where he wrote right. about calculus as though it were uh, a science fiction story about the discovery of any other great technology that moves the world, only he wrote about it, the actual historical events that led to the discovery <laughs> of calculus. That was right. a, a, a wonderful example of how something can follow genre conventions without actually being science fiction. It was science fiction adjacent. Um, dystopianism is both a political philosophy or a, a, a view of the world and a genre. It has, you mm-hmm. know, aesthetics. And Walk Away is a novel that has u- dystopian aesthetics. It has the furniture and the wardrobe of a dystopian novel. <laughs> but yeah. it is a novel that is fundamentally... Uh, optimistic in that its premise is that, as I said before, in times of crisis, we will pull together and not pull apart, uh, except for, and that the people who want to pull apart in times of crisis, those people are aberrant. They are beyond the pale. Uh, The belief that when disaster strikes, you should bug in while your neighbors rebuild and then come back because your neighbors are not to be trusted. That is a that is a, a toxic and unsustainable belief because we need people to rebuild because disasters are um, you know believing that disasters will come that is not a, a pessimistic view that's just a realistic view even if you had a very well organized and resilient society it would be challenged by things well beyond its control exogenous shocks like sure. rising seas or mutating microbes and you know it doesn't matter how well organized you are disaster strikes what you do when the disaster strikes. What, you know, a venture capitalist would call your liquidation preference. <laughs> That's the thing that that, that uh, cleaves disaster from catastrophe and cleaves a disaster novel from a dystopian one. So I call this an optimistic disaster novel. <laughs> I think that that is that is a very good description of it um, because it, it has certainly both, both of those elements. Um, and, you know, and I also thought it was a really unique, like, book and in, in it has you know one of the things that that certainly i talk about a lot and have for decades now is is this whole idea of like you know post scarcity uh elements and and i and i've always argued that you know it's you know we don't necessarily lead to a world where everything is there there are always some scarcities and and some things that are abundant or infinitely available um but you know what does it mean when more things become you know switch from being scarce to to abundant um and you know most of the sort of futuristic takes that i've seen on those in the past are really really simplified and i think that's part of the nature of it being difficult to predict the future <laughs> and and especially difficult to extrapolate because you know you, you just naturally start to simplify things but what i thought was really interesting about the book is that you know and and again you're not predicting the future and the future will i'm sure be different than, than what you wrote about but i thought it was it was one of the most sort of realistic takes on what might happen um in in sort of highlighting both sort of, you know, amazing, wonderful opportunities that could be created when things are, you know, especially sort of physical things and even, you know, the idea of, 
you know, life and brains and, and thoughts um, become more abundant rather than scarce, um, but also shows some of sort of the risks and downsides to it. And, and I, to me, that was, that was sort of really um, impressive to sort of not fall into kind of a, a, a trite, like, you know, this will be amazing or this will be horrible kind of situation. Yeah, and you know, as 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 you will know, I've written about um, scarcity and abundance for yeah. literally my whole novel writing career. My first novel, Down yep. at the Magic Kingdom, was a scarcity novel, and Makers, my last adult novel nine years ago, was a scarcity novel. And I've come to the conclusion that scarcity is a kind of triangle, and um, at the tip of the triangle is what we want. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think this often gets neglected in discussions, unless we're talking about that essay Keynes wrote in 1930, where he said by 2015, we would all work 15-hour work weeks right. and struggle to fill the rest of our time because we would have enough productivity to fill all of our material wants. And he misunderstood the uh, the demand elasticity. And, you know, marketing uh, is a thing that makes us want more, sometimes for better and sometimes for worse. I, I, I don't mean to be cynical about this. I think that, you know, making people want... Uh, to have all of their children survive instead of expecting that only uh, two-thirds of them will, that is a, that is a, a marketing uh, project that involves convincing people to spend money, resource, and time on health care. Right. Uh, and, um, you know, that that's, I think that's a, a good thing, even though it's a persuasive exercise in making people want something that they don't necessarily want when, when it starts. But what we want has clearly changed, and that project has always been contestable. You know, you've got Buddhists who say we should want nothing. You've got Mary Kondo, who's making a cottage industry <laughs> out of convincing all of us that, you know, as Koiri Sikra said, that all we want, all we should want is a single smooth river rock that reminds us <laughs> of our mother, you know. Um, right. and, and so what we want is very elastic. If we all wanted a lot less, we would be living in a post-scarcity world in every regard, right? Right. You know, uh, Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom, my first novel, was about um, how you resolve the deadlocks about the intrinsic scarcity of things like uh, Walt Disney World. But there was a long time in which there wasn't a Walt Disney World, and no one wanted one, and it wasn't (laughs) like we had a scarcity of Walt Disney Worlds, right? Right. And so scarcity and abundance definitely have that one dimension that, that is very important. There's another dimension, which is what we can make. Right. And that's the 3D printing and and all the rest of it. You know, one of the questions that arises when we talk about abundance and um, and a kind of bright green future or the 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 future that the Promethean left has always promised, where every peasant is lifted up to live like a lord, um, is that the the green left and the degrowth world, they say, well, in order to let everybody live like an American rich person, we would need six planets worth of resources. Where are you going to get six planets worth of resources to support our one planet? And there's there are many answers to that, but one of them is that um, market economies have done something pretty amazing in the last couple of generations, which is they mm-hmm. have reduced the labor, uh, energy, and um, material inputs in physical goods by orders of magnitude. Yeah. You know, skyscrapers versus 300-year-old buildings, the amount of cubic foot that they feet that they enclose uh, and the ratio to materials that go into them yeah. has become radically leaned out. Now, that has been accompanied by this massive increase in demand, both um, in the aggregate and, uh, and in the individual. So we have more sure. people and the people want more. Um, but, you know, the, the short answer to... 
how do you require how do you provide enough for everyone when it would require six Earths is we reduce the material inputs by five sixths. Um, right. But the third piece is the piece that, that Walkaway is really about. So Makers was about manufacturing. Down and Out of the Magic yep. Kingdom was about what we want. The um, Walkaway is about the third piece, which is how we get the stuff that we make to the people who want it. It's the logistics. And logistics have been the most transformative element of the, mm. of the technological revolution in yeah. ways that are um, uh, very visible, like McDonald's selling you a cow that has the beef of a, th- of a thousand, or a, a burger that has the beef of a thousand cows in it, you know, which makes them <laughs> right. like a logistics company for tracking and, and shipping fractional cows. Um, right. But, but also, you know, cloud computing, where yep. we can abstract away from any given data center. And so it doesn't matter which metal your code runs on, so long as there's metal somewhere. And we can do things like run your code on whatever metal is cheapest at any given moment. So wherever the uh, sun is shining, um, or, you know, Google has this data center in Belgium, where two-thirds of the time it's so cold out that they don't need to have chillers. And the rest mm. of the time they just turn the data center off. Because Google's data doesn't care which which center it's processed right. in, right? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And you know, uh, when I first went to Burning Man, uh, Catherine Moronic gave me this great piece of advice. She's always given me great advice. She said, "Every piece of Burning Man is perfectly representative and self-similar, and anything that you're enjoying now is just as great as the thing that you're missing. So just stop and enjoy <laughs> it." Uh, right. And. The internet is a bit like that. The website you're not reading right now is not is probably not more entertaining than the website you are reading right now. <laughs> uh, and so there is always something great to do. And you you and I we've been to events and conferences that are organized like this. Foo Camp is a good example. Yep, sure. And the bar camps where it's just so many interesting people talking about so many interesting things. You can never get to all the talks. And if you're like me. You just go to whatever talks, you know, strikes your fancy first, or you just walk into a room and see what they're talking yep. about. And almost all the time, you find yourself doing something amazing. And oftentimes, it's something you didn't expect. Uh, it's what's great about the the best of new designs in Disney theme parks with a lot of uh, interactive entertainment and interaction with humans. You know, they just announced this thing where they're going to make a kind of alternate reality game uh, resort for Star Wars at the uh, old MGM resort in Florida, where mm-hmm. you will spend multiple days living as a Star Wars character, and what <laughs> you right. do will ripple out through the, all the rides and hotels and everything. And and so, what would it be like if the way that we managed to acquire abundance was by having things and people migrate towards each other all the time? in a kind of hill-climbing algorithm towards whatever is great and available at any given moment so you were always doing something great and something great was always happening. What if we could have like the Zipcar version of fully automated luxury communism where, (laughs) you know, um, instead of the burden of owning a lawnmower that stays in your garage 13 days out of 14 and also six months out of the year, and that is like the 11th best lawnmower because you're not a groundskeeper. You're not going to buy a really great lawnmower and uh, that, you know, you have to service and you have to take care of. What if the greatest lawnmower we can imagine showed up at the moment your lawn needed mowing, you pushed it around and then it just migrated towards the next person's lawn, right? Well, that's a way that with even if you couldn't reduce the material inputs into that product, 
to the point where we could give one to everyone, we could still give everyone a lawnmower at exactly the moment they needed it without having to have a lawnmower for everyone, without having to resolve that conundrum. And so that's the post-scarcity of the walkaways. And there's one sequence in which it's very well embodied, I think, which is this subculture called the bumblers. Yep. And the bumblers are the survivor of an investment bubble that I kind of modeled on the dot-com bubble. And one of the effects of the dot-com bubble was to uh, take all of this money, you know, ran a Ponzi scheme that took all this money away from pension funds and insurance companies and used it to train liberal arts majors to write HTML, <laughs> right? And produced this huge surplus. Like long after the bubble had burst, it produced right. this huge surplus of people who could make the web. And that's that's how we got the web, right? And yep. um, uh, these are people who are the survivors or the refugees from a Zeppelin building bubble, which, <laughs> right. you know, it sounds cool on its face. It's a very... Uh, it's a very um, uh, uh, what's his name? I always want to call him Iron Man, the founder of Tesla. Uh, oh, uh, Elon, Elon Musk. Musk. It's a very yeah. Elon Muskish kind of project, yep. you know, to 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 announce that to announce and then kick off a huge investing panic in throwing money at airships that just never goes anywhere. But afterwards, they break into the factories, liberate the fr the uh, half-built airships, finish them, and take to the skies. And because there are people all over the world who participated in this bubble, and because the wind is always blowing somewhere, and because <laughs> networks always let them figure out who it is, wherever the wind is blowing, they want to see, they can become like sky hobos that are <laughs> always going somewhere and never know where they're going, but everywhere they go, it's always great. Right. <laughs> That's, uh, I, I love the idea of, of, of logistics sort of being the core of it. And, and I, I hadn't even considered that, even though like now that I'm sort of like thinking back through it, it is like sort of the thread to some extent that, that holds much of the book together. That, and, and, you know, everything we love about the world too. Yeah, right? sure. All no, all absolutely. Cool no, and, 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 and that's, yeah. Wow. Okay. You're making me think a lot. <laughs> oh, good. Well, you make me think a lot all the time, so that's great. Yeah, no, no, it's um, it it is really really interesting. I mean, so I always like you know when I'm thinking about like scarcity and abundance, I often I, I often go back to like, um, and I don't know how familiar you are with with, with some of the stuff, but like, um, there's there's this economist Paul Romer. Do you know uh -huh, him yeah. at all? And he you know he had done a lot of work on sort of like information scarcity and and abundance and, and things like that and he talks about sort of you know sort of the key argument that he's making is that sort of information solves that scarcity problem like it, it, it you know he he puts it in the terms of economic growth which is the same sort of thing that that you're you're arguing mm -hmm. to some extent right i mean if you can have that perfect lawnmower show up wherever it needs to be and everyone gets to you know have the perfect lawn or or however it, it is um, that's a form of economic growth. Everyone is sort of better off by it, and yet the cost is much less than you know buying everyone that 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 lawnmower. Um, but I, I hadn't quite you know sort of thought about the sort of logistics angle to that 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 makes that a part of it. You know, I always th thought about it as a sort of like increasing productivity, like, you know, reducing the, the material cost. But there is also that element of if you can sort of, you know, it, it, uh, I mean, for the, for the manufacturing geeks, it gets into like this like just-in-time <laughs> mm -hmm. delivery kind of concept. Um, but, you know, that's, always, that's generally used more from like the manufacturing side, whereas you're almost, you, you know, if you take that to a 
consumer level and or you know personal level not con- consumer being the wrong word here i think too um that becomes a really really powerful and interesting idea in in its own way um, yeah yeah i really think so i mean and you know th- these are like uh, like you right i spent a lot of time thinking about about scarcity and about abundance and about you know w- practically speaking in the world like what we could yeah. make or do that that would make things better and you know it's it, it's funny because um although the the uh people who are kind of um statists or collectivists and people who are individualists and people who believe in kind of the the political left of the spectrum and political right of the spectrum have irreconcilable views yeah. about what to do they have pretty similar views in many ways about why to do it. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, they, 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 it's about prosperity and about, um, uh, riches and about, about progress and about, uh, elevating people instead of keeping them down. I mean, that's the thing that distinguishes them from say reactionaries, right? The neo-reactionary movement that actually does believe in like peasants and Lords. Um, it's, and it's, when you start to when you when you realize that it's there for the same reason, then you can start to maybe fuse elements of the ideas. And one of the things, of course, that science fiction is super good at is trying to consider a technology as a thought experiment that has yeah. been removed from its economic and social context and put in a radically different one, and tries to through that isolate the elements of how the technology works in the world that are about the technology and the parts that are like epiphenomena or that are emergent properties of its uh, of its interaction with other things. So, you know, steampunk, like the motto of steampunk magazine was uh, love the machine, hate the factory. And <laughs> steampunk was like, what if we could have the kind of innovation and invention you get in under market capitalism with um, industrial production modes but through a, a craft and guild mode of production where right. individuals working in workshops produce things that were as amazing as the things that huge collect, uh, collective enterprises, huge concerns made in which most people had to subjugate their will to a hierarchy. And, you know, that is a really exciting idea. And, I, I you know, it's, rare, it's a rare steampunk who puts it that way. But I think when <laughs> sure. you scratch at it, what you find is people who do love the idea of having a jetpack, but hate the idea of having General Electric make it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. No. I. I think that's true, and I think it's it's interesting. It's, and you know, and I've said this at a, at a very basic level in terms of like, you know, part of the reason why I get so interested, and there are many reasons, but part of the reason why I get so interested in sort of technology and innovation is because it. it you know, and, and, and certainly sort of the policy questions related to it is that I don't think it, it fits nicely into sort of traditional sort of political lines or partisan lines in particular. And, you know, and and I like that because it actually allows you to, to like, well, one, focus on the issue as opposed to just screaming, <laughs> screaming yeah. at each other. Um, but but two, it, it, you know, in in some ways it makes those issues and this gets back to sort of my view of your book, which was like unclassifiable, right? Mm-hmm. And and that's because I, to me, I think it's because it, it challenges some of those assumptions. And that's why like, you know, I've had people, you know, scream at me about how I'm both like an extreme right wing, but also like, you know, a 
socialist, right? Because it just depends on like which prism they sort of go through to to approach mm-hmm. the ideas. When I'm talking about when when my approach is neither of those things, mm-hmm. it's just like I'm I'm looking at these things sort of individually in terms of like innovation and what does that do for for the public and for people and and what you know wonderful things and what potentially problematic things does it bring into the world and let's just look at that not through an ideological prism necessarily but through like is this you know what does this do what does it mean and you know one of the things that 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 has been interesting to me and i think sort of is reflected back in what you were just saying is is that because of innovation sort of changing these things and especially that 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 nature of scarcity and abundance sort of shifting that it's you know it's challenging the assumptions that create the ideologies in the first place yeah well i mean if markets are there to help us allocate scarce resources and markets can make those resources not scarce anymore um what are we using what are we using (laughs) markets for right right Right? at that point markets become a game right which is like it's fun poker is fun but poker (laughs) poker is not uh, you know, poker is not a good unto itself, and it and it doesn't. Um, you know, the the justification for the inequality in markets is that on balance, the inequality is a, like a kind of necessary evil that you have on the way to raising up the prosperity of everyone. But if you can raise up the prosperity of everyone without the inequality, that's almost as much of a crisis for capitalism right. as the current one, which is that if you what if the inequality doesn't produce uh, prosperity. Right. Right. Both of those are, are crises for market capitalism. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and yeah, I mean, just what if the market does away with the need for the market? Right? Yeah. <laughs> which, which, you know, and, and, and so you see that and you sort of see, I mean, it's the same thing where you have like, and then this begins to go down a tangent, but you, you know, you see industries that sort of crave regulation themselves to sort of protect them <laughs> from, from, you know, effectively obsoleting themselves, right? Mm-hmm. And, and to some extent, it's that same thing, um, in in sort of a different package. Yeah, um, but but really interesting. Um, anyways, I I could I could go on. Well, for... As can I? Well, I went on for approximately one hundred and seventy thousand words. Yes, yes. Um, but but if if you find any of this sort of you know random thinking about stuff interesting uh, and you haven't read uh, Corey's book you should because this is the kind of stuff that it gets you thinking about uh, and much and much much more plus it's just it 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 you know and this is not to say that it, it doesn't have a, a fun and and fascinating plot as well as you said mm-hmm. um, you know there's there's a pulp <laughs> aspect yeah. to it but it's uh it's it's a it's a really really excellent book I mean um, I th- and and I, maybe that's a good thing to close on here is sure. that uh it's it's fun and wonky and cool, and I enjoy digging into the ways in which this is a book about these kind of more abstract and interesting themes. But I am a pulp writer. I write science <laughs> fiction novels. And like William Gibson said about this, you know, I can do plot. My tractor has wheels on it. This is a book about people <laughs> in Zeppelins fighting people in mechas <laughs> with rail guns, right? It is, it is not uh, an abstract yes. novel about cowboys eating pudding. Right. It is it is a really like rip snorting doing stuff verse verse chorus. You know, as they as they say at the beginning of the Princess Bride, you know, good men, bad men, beautiful ladies, (laughs) giants, sword fights, you know, it's got that stuff. Yes. 
it has it has all that stuff and it is it is one of those you know fun books that it's very difficult to put down um but also on the side in the back of your brain will will attack and and eat away at <laughs> different elements of it in 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 really really good ways and and i it's it's a fantastic book and and uh you know, you did a really, really amazing job with it. Not that, that anyone probably expected anything different. Oh, but, thank uh, you, Mike. It's, uh... it's, you make it sound like one of those um, brain parasites you get from using a neti pot. Like it's fun while you're doing it and it just and it takes up residence in your brain forever. But but in a good way, in a good but way. But in a I'm good ser- way. It's I'm a good serious. kind of brain parasite. Yeah, I mean, as I said, I mean, like I, I read the, the copy that you gave to me It's a while ago. I mean, I think it was over a year ago, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, and... And it's still like I still think about it constantly, mm. and, and in 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 a good way, and and like it it, you know I I I I see things happening, and I sort of relate them back to it, and it's it's yeah, it's just a great book. Oh, that's great. <laughs> oh, and I should say that the reason it's not called Utopia anymore is uh-huh. um, I sent it to Kim Stanley Robinson for a quote, and he said he sent me back a wonderful quote, and he said this is such a great book, but it's obviously called Walk Away. Why have you called it Utopia? <laughs> Oh, okay. I thought it was a. I thought it was a secret. I thought you were trying no, to hide. No, no. That was the original title. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Dan Robinson. He's the yeah. founder of all the feasts. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Well. Um, cool. Again, thank you. Thank you thank for you. writing the book, and thank you very much for for yeah. joining us. And as uh, as as expected, a very interesting discussion. And um, oh, and you know what? Given yes. given the audience for this, we should mention the. Um, digital versions and the unusual and interesting things that accompany sure. them. So the audiobooks uh, are self-produced yes. with uh, Will Wheaton, Amber Benson from Buffy, uh, uh, Amanda Palmer. Um, yep. And uh, the audiobooks and the ebooks are both being retailed through my own website as well as in all the usual places. But the interesting thing about that is I'm serving as the retailer for my publisher in the case oh. of the ebooks. So Tor Books and Head of Zeus, which is my British publisher... I sell for them. So when you buy from me, I take the 30% that would otherwise be Amazon share right off mm-hmm. the top. I remit the rest to my publisher and they send a quarter of that back to me in the form of a royalty, which makes them a kind of fair trade ebook. You effectively double the author's royalty without having to change the share that um, the publisher takes out of it. And it benefits the whole ecosystem that helps my books thrive. So my agent gets his cut and so on. The right. other um, cool part of this that I know you'll appreciate is this is the first time, to my knowledge, that ebooks have been sold from a major publisher with no license agreement. There is huh. literally no EULA. We we were able to strike that clause from their standard retailer deal. Really? And the deal with this book is copyright law gives you some rights, and it gives yep. me some rights, and you get your rights and I get my rights, and buying this book does not make you um, abrogate your rights. Right. You're not signing a contract. Yeah, to to buy the book. Oh, that's fascinating. And yes, you're right. This audience will appreciate that. I think so. <laughs> oh, that's really interesting. I didn't. I that I did not know. I knew about the the ebook and and who you had in that, but I didn't realize the other. Yeah, oh, and it has a cool advantage in that um, because I know who my publisher is in every territory in the world. It's not that thing where you go to like the UK bookstore and it says, "Sorry, right. you need to buy it from the US bookstore," and then you have right. to figure out where and which one. Um, anywhere in the world, I can sell you these books. Uh, hmm. And then I figure out who gets the money. Because, like, why should you care what licensing arrangements I've made in your territory in right. order to, to read my book? Yeah. Yeah. 
Very interesting. Um, wow. Okay. Well, uh, I don't want to go on too long. I was going to. No, say... <laughs> I'm going to. I'm going to open source that platform once we've worked the kinks out okay. of it. Okay. Uh, we'll GPL it, and then uh, ideally, maybe we'll kickstart like um, paying the programmer who built it to uh, write a packager for it because it's now right. You know, a bunch of little pieces that she built. Uh, and then once we it's packaged, um, anyone will be able to run their own ebook store and be a retailer for their publisher. Uh, if you know someone could try going into business running it as a platform that hosts writers who don't want to set up their own servers, uh, yeah. you know all of that stuff. Yeah, that's really cool. Very, very interesting. All sorts of possibilities spring to mind from that. Mm -hmm. That's that's very cool to hear. I thought you'd like that. I I do I do as always you're you're ahead of the curve. Ah, that's kind of you. <laughs> um, and well, anyways, um, thanks again for for joining us. And, oh, thank and you. Thanks to everyone for for listening. I'm I'm sure everyone enjoyed this. And uh, good luck with the the rest of your book tour. And um, for for anyone who's listening who hasn't yet cool. gotten the book, go go check it out. It's, yeah, it's thanks, really Mike. excellent. And uh, we'll be back next week with another podcast. So thanks again. All right. To grab a shovel and pick up the cat. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and 